and welcome everybody to another episode of the Monitor Keeping Podcast. I'm Alan Stevens here with Kai. How's it going, you guys? And uh, today we're just going to kind of be, you know, talking about different monitor stuff. Um, just, this is going to be kind of like a phone call between me and Kai, just for all of you to listen to. This is what happens I, sometimes three times a week, sometimes once a week. Seems like we fit it in. Uh, well, now with the podcast, it's we, we cover a lot of stuff on the podcast for everybody. But yeah, um, yeah. So we'll most, this most of the time, uh, it's uh, conversations at two or three in the morning. Um, luckily, we're on the same coast, so similar time frame. Even if it is crack of dawn, um, we're not even the crack of dawn yet. It's still dark outside. Um, but yeah, this conversation is going to be a little bit more on the kind of like on the fly or on the whim. Um, We've had to kind of um, uh, come up with something quick as we've had to postpone for technical difficulties for one of the guests we've had. So um, we're just trying to really make make good usage of this time. And uh, really, uh, this is just going to be kind of like, like Alan said, how it'd be more of a typical conversation that what we'd be having as as the conversations we'd have normally would be pretty left <laughs> with stuff too because we're just trying to really dissect everything um break break yeah. stuff down um and this uh this is in you know a lot of times we have kind of like a uh i'd say a topic but um you know this one's probably going to have a few topics where uh, we're going to touch on a few different things actually i do Questions. I do have a fair amount yeah. of questions um, that uh, you know a few of the listeners have also have also sent me. Um, some people aren't really willing to sit in the hot seat just yet, um, and it's also getting them on is uh, is another is another difficult task in itself. So um, really finding the right timing. So some people are just sending in questions and we'll have a section where we're answering some of your guys' questions as well. So um, in a sense, this would be another little Q and a thing as well. We'll, we'll be fitting, fitting in some of your guys's um, your guys's uh, wants and needs as far as what you're trying to figure out. All right. Um, now, well, I guess, uh, you know, we're, we're really trying to, we're really trying to touch base with a lot of the beginners. So, um, mind you, there's going to be just questions that, you know, if you're someone that's experienced, you know, something that you've already kind of gone over, you're already really well experienced with. But um, you know, we're trying to really get to just the guys that don't know any of this stuff yet or they're really trying to figure it out or some are confused. Um, and one topic that I want to talk about are something very simple, um, and it's the difference between – ambient temperature usage and surface temperatures in Ooh, usage. Yeah. Um, now, okay, as a beginner, I often hear where essentially you're confused or more so of just uh, not understanding quite yet exactly the two differences in temperatures that you'll need. And so some people are saying, oh, some people tell me it's 120, 130, 140, um, and then some people tell me it's 95 on the hot side, uh, 100 degrees on the hot side, and that's it. Um, well, in instances, both of those are right if they differentiate which exact temperatures should be what and right. measured by what. Um, now, uh, for the newcomers, your tools are going to be you know, a normal thermometer for ambient air temperature or you're, you're, you're essentially trying to get what the air is what in and around the bulb or on the other side or wherever you put the probe right and then you'll have your surface temperature which is measured by a temperature gun and this is uh, often there your little infrared gun that you have where you're maybe several inches to a foot away from the actual basking spot directly underneath the lamps and then you're going to hit it with a gun to see what your temperatures are at um mm -hmm. that is surface temperature now your ambient or what you're measuring with the thermometer Let's say it's on the cool side, right? And you have a thermometer over there. It's you're aiming for high seventies, low eighties, something like that. That's some. That's a that's a range you want. Maybe even at nighttime, I have some of mine go into the sixty fives. I don't really go anything below sixty, but seventies is a good number for you as a beginner. Okay, on the cool side at nighttime, or just on the cool side average, high seventies, something like that. 
<laughs> now your thermometer reading on the warm side, if it's right underneath the bulbs or kind of on the side of the bulbs, that's going to be right at around 95, 100 degrees, maybe even 105, 110, give or take. It really just depends on where the probe is. But let's say if you inch it right underneath, it's probably going to be a good 100. If it's if it's about uh, maybe, I'd say, four or five inches to the right a little bit, it's going to be more like 90s, you know. And then you move, as you move further away, the math deducts itself from being further from the heat, and then it's just going to be like 80s and, and where you're more, more of your – the overall temperature. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, those are things that you want to get accustomed to or get used to differentiating the, between the two. So, you know, you'll have a bulb, how the how you want the bulbs to work for you. Cause you know, now we're talking about the, the source of heat. Um, you're going to crank in a bulb and you're going to try to achieve good ambience first. You're just trying to achieve 90s, 95s on that hot side, 100 degrees, you know. And then your ambient temperature, you're gonna, you're kind of gonna get get a feel of the basking spots. Always roughly gonna be about a foot away, maybe even two feet, 15 inches, something like that. And some in some cases only six or seven inches away from the basking spot. And uh, you'll determine your actual surface temperature area by the distance between the actual bulb. And the actual spot. So let's say if it's uh, a 50 watt bulb floodlight, and you have it under, you have it on above a, you know, a, a slate rocker or something like that, and it's uh, 10 inches away, and it's reading one, one fifteen, right? But your goal is one twenty five, one thirty. So your your next step to then is either to lower the bulb a couple inches or to actually raise the basking spot. A couple inches yep. and this is to actually bring the actual area up because your ambient is still the same so your bulb is your usage doesn't need to change let's say if you've achieved that now 90 100 degrees on that hot side you're good right you're good ambiently you're good where it's supposed to be hot enough for just the normal day for them right and then you have a cool side now you know, as you're calculating stuff if your cool side is like 89, 90 degrees, then your cage is a little bit too hot. You'll have to figure out how to cool that side down or lower the heat there. And then what you're going to do is bring the surface temperature or the surface actual area, the basking area, closer to the lamp, creating a higher area for that animal there. Um, now that's your, how you're going to be adjusting, deducting, or basically figuring out your bulbs through the small wattage changes that you might need. Um, and that, to me in clarification should have you guys understanding a little bit more on gathering ambient temperatures on what's correct and then surface temperatures applying them both together and then having the right usage now where surface temperatures are important and ambient temperatures are important right so you obviously don't want things to go too hot and yeah. you don't want things to be burning your animal so the distance is one thing, but you're not just going to oh, say, hey, it's I'm used to doing 10 inches, 12 inches. It's always going to be like that. You're going to use your temperature gun every time, every single bulb you use, and you're going to hit it after it's been sitting on there for overnight or a day or so, and it's gathered temperatures, core temperatures that you can measure. And if it's 150, 160, 170, which you absolutely don't need, then your choice then would be to deduct and go lower and the distance is going to be further away um, from the actual bulb and the basking site. So your precise temperatures would help you out very, very much instead of just whimming it. Now you can have great ambience and have no surface temperature because you didn't put a basking area there. And so there's no, way to get up close it can sit underneath the bulb and the beam of the bulb it'll get kind of warm but not optimum temperature where they can get really really hot and that's the key thing for success in breeding and getting them to digest well if you didn't have a basking spot that was higher than your normal ambient temperatures your animal wouldn't digest well enough it'll sit there kind of just like a blob with a bunch of food in its belly not being able to digest so having those temperatures differentiated that way. Hopefully that'll help you guys out. Yeah. Also, I think with some of the, um, the cages, just the design or maybe the house that it's in, 
don't be afraid to experiment in your own setup with adding another low wattage bulb somewhere in the enclosure if necessary, because it can bring the entire ambience up um, of that cage if you're if you're not getting hot enough. Um, or even a smaller watt bulb. I've added 25 watt bulbs just somewhere in uh, along the cage. Um, and it has done a lot just to not only increase the, the hot spot, the basking spot, uh, because you're increasing the overall ambience, but to bring that temperature up a little bit. So just an idea is something you might want to look into or experiment with uh, as the seasons change. Uh, because the, the other great thing about it, instead of depending on one bulb to do everything, is in the summer, you can just turn that one off. You can unscrew the bulb, take it out. Um, even in dwarf monitor cages where you might only keep one animal, uh, it's just another very, uh, cheap option to help, uh, account for those different temps you might experience, uh, depending, like I said, again, on the cage build, uh, the temperatures in your house where you're keeping the animals or, um, with the season changes. Oh, and, uh, also what you use, um, a lot of us do like to use wood for our basking spots or cork tubes, um, but a piece of slate or a piece of rock is going to be hotter than that wood will be. So yeah. uh, sometimes everything's good. Uh, the ambience are where you want them to be, but you're not getting that hot spot and you don't really want to go up in wattage. You can also play with, um, you know, yeah. gluing a piece of slate on top of the wood that the highest wood piece to achieve those tents. Or, or and measured, right? Let's say if you had a piece of cork next to a piece of black slate, the same level, the slate's going to be a few degrees hotter. Just, yep. just naturally. I don't know. I don't know what, why, but it's probably just because of the material that it is and all that stuff like that. Um, but uh, it's uh, something to you know keep keep in mind. You know, another point. Uh, this was. <laughs> I guess I'll let the cat out of the bag a little bit. We had a recorded podcast that um, I I jacked up. <laughs> so we're still trying to figure out if anything is useful uh, from that. But to share a little bit about some of the information in that podcast was um, the type of reflector that you use. Um, if it's painted white on the inside or dull, um, it might not reflect as much light and energy you know, slash heat, uh, that's something with a nice mirror finish will, or a nice, uh, nicer finish on the inside will. So something to take into consideration, or if there's a lot of us that don't even use, uh, any type of dome or reflector. Um, <clears throat> you can maybe increase that basking spot by adding that, uh, that reflector in and pointing it downward. It's still going to have all the heat inside the cage if that's where it is. Um, so it's not like you're really losing that heat. It's just going to help focus it a little more. So, <clears throat> yeah, man, we're just, uh, <laughs> we're just winging it. Just yeah. Winging it. yeah. Um, hey, it'll be good yeah. though. Um, okay. Now, um, getting into, I don't know, I'd say more, more the long, still along the lines of bulbs. Right. Um, I think I kind of touched on this uh, a little bit where we, um, we covered some some bulbs that we use right now. Most people are using BR30s, um, but some people still wing it with like spot bulbs if they use a spa a nice distance, right? Yeah. Um, now, what's weird is I've seen people use bulbs like a, a big single bulb on one big huge monitor, and it still work. I, I don't know. It's it's, it's quite. To find the right bulb and all that stuff like that, it will really just take you to buy them and try them and see yeah. how everything responds first. So, like for me, I personally don't use any of the 100 watts, 150 watts, 250 watts because most of my animals are quite small and they don't really have to have any of that. And I space out my bulbs, so I may still use a total of 150 watts, but it's spaced out between three or four bulbs, right? right? And um, that way I'm still achieving what the needs to heat up a big six or eight foot enclosure, but I'm also um, broadening out and spacing out that heat a little bit to cover the whole animal 
um, basking rather than just the spot over its back. Um, now, I've been testing quite a few different bulbs over the last, I'd say, year or two where I was myself just strict on par 38s, right? But it's been quite a few, I'd say now, now a good year of not being able to really find bulbs anymore. So, um, you know, ordering online and things like that, finding what was useful to me was quite hard. And so um, scouring through what was easy to find, um, I was able to look up these bulbs that were used by chameleon keepers, right? Um, now, also, I've seen other, other monitor keepers use them as well. And I've always wondered, man, like, how come the space is so close? You know, like, isn't, aren't you scared your thing's going to burn, right? But I discovered these bulbs where... You know, the, uh, for example, these chameleons were basically burning their cast and burning their back um, and burning their sides because our floodlights and basking lights, because they'd get so close to it because they're a tree animal, they're going to, you know, um, hover around it. Um, we use these bulbs now that are BR30s and BR40s where I can have a much closer distance and even four or five inches away isn't going to burn my animal. Um, and so uh, your... You're able to manipulate the enclosure a little bit if it's smaller or let's say if you um, – what I've been able to utilize is I put them in the farthest corner all the way – all the way you know, to the left or the right of the enclosure and I have a basking spot that's really close up there and only that little tiny nook. It's like a fraction of the cage, you know, uh, less than 25% of the cage for sure. Um and that's, that's that only hot area that's 90-ish, 95 degrees, right? 100 degrees. Wow. But the rest of the enclosure, the way that's designed and how those bulbs are up there, they don't get too blistering hot. And so I can use a couple of them up there. And they're making it my cage just good enough without being too hot. Um, yep. So utilizing that should help out a lot with if you were able to find floodlight there's still floodlights they're just soft white they're called soft white indoor outdoor floodlights you know i um we might have touched on this before i can't remember now but i i in my mind i got this idea yeah. to try out like a three-foot cube basically to make a cage that's uh you know just a three-foot cube and to put the uh, heating element basically in the middle of the cage um, and adjust it. And I wonder if it would just kind of have an even heat more than like a four by two or six by two cage would, because we're traditionally putting one light at the far end and letting that be the hot spot, the basking area. And then, um, you know, using the rest as the gradient sometimes in my opinion for some of the Australian stuff, especially during the, the breeding season, I want to keep those temperatures up, uh, even on the cool end. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, low 80s uh, down at the cool end in the daytime. Um, I wonder if it'd be a, almost a more efficient design to just use that three-foot cube, so to speak. Because um, for if you're keeping one or two animals, it might not matter. When you start keeping a lot of animals, I'm, I'm, you know, trying to be as energy efficient as possible <laughs> yeah. uh, to make this thing real. It also has to flow, right? Like <clears throat> um, some of the bulbs I've learned, I have to decrease in wattage as I'm either adding more stuff into there or as like mm -hmm. the, the temperatures are getting hotter through the day and my temperatures aren't really controlled too much at the moment since the temperatures are more constant they're not just blistering hot right and so but let's say it does get up a little hotter um i've had from winter i've had to change my bulbs down from like 75 to 50 watts now and then when it gets into the summertime that's where those br30s come in really efficient they yeah. basically don't burn your animal you can touch the bulb as the bulb is on you can hang on to that bulb for a good minute without burning your hand. That's how efficient that is to not burn you, um, but still create a basking temperature as long as you're close though. That's the thing. You have to be really close. So to some people it's scary, but to some, if you can work it out, it, it actually is, is a little bit beneficial as well. So 
Um, but mm, we offer different types of usages and bulbs to, to all types of people where like for us, we have smaller enclosures and they're kind of just built for, just for that. But some people with big enclosures, those BR thirties aren't going to work. You know, they're like yeah. for somebody with a huge water monitor enclosure. Um, maybe a couple of those on a, on a moderately warm part of the enclosure to buffer out the cold. But let's say if you wanted to generate and use BR30s in a 16-foot enclosure or 20-foot enclosure, you're not going to have a chance because right. they're, they're not a, that efficient. So in, in, the, in a sense, they're not that great if you have a giant enclosure. So using big mega rays or 250-watt bulbs spread out, spaced out, used properly. You know, some people use mini bulbs, like I'd say six or seven little or more smaller bulbs that equal a bunch of uh, that equal higher wattage, and then they're able to um, have a gradient that way. Mm -hmm. And then they turn off little by little. So I can have 250 watts running through wintertime, right? But let's say in summertime, I'm only going to need 100 watts. So instead of having to just deduct the whole bulb, if it was a one 250-watt bulb, I can just deduct 25, 50, or whatever those bulbs that I use, 25, 30 watts, yeah. 50 watts, and just deduct it like that. Keeping those other bulbs there, still having a decent gradient, but now I'm really, I, you know, I've also, obviously I'm saving electricity. I took off 50 watts or 30 watts from this bulb that I don't need on right now because it's making it too hot. And you'll know by your thermometers if, you know, your cold side is saying um, 88, 90, 93 degrees, something like that on a cold side it's going to be a little bit too warm and so you want to deduct and turn something off and so yeah so till until that area reaches 78 80 82 degrees those are your more more um needs for your cool side temperatures so um well, you know something else i wanted to bring up a question that did come up um i was helping someone set up basically for a new monitor and they weren't achieving the temperature that they wanted. Now they're getting a baby monitor. They had, I think, a like a forty-gallon um, glass breeder Exoterra type of tank, and everything seemed right um, as far as how I would set it up. And but the the temps weren't quite getting to where they wanted the temps to be. Um, it turned out that the uh, Basically, the terrarium, the enclosure was on a stand, and the person had put that stand over the vent in their bedroom, where mm. that's where the cold air is coming up. It was a, yeah. like a floor vent, and uh, it's cooling down. The glass has no insulating properties. Um, so if it's cold air hitting that glass, then that's going to transfer right into that cage, and it's yeah. going to mess with your temperatures. It'll, and it'll draw, it'll draw the cold, the, it'll suck the heat out actually even. Yeah. 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 And um, so now you can make those work. That's not a problem. But in this situation, um, you have to, you had to rearrange the room, you know, it's like, well, you're now going to be competing with the heat coming off this cage in your room in the summer. So yeah, you don't, you don't your, want to do that. Right. Move your bed closer to the vent where that's going to help you sleep at night and move the cage to a more stable part of the room where it's going to keep those temperatures better. So um, just something to think about for those people out there. Now, <clears throat> it, that is with a glass enclosure where if you're using a three-fourths inch plywood, um, something like a PVC enclosure, it might not have that same issue. It insulates better where it's not going to transfer that cold air um, or suck the heat out as much. So simple things to think about. Um, you know, some of us use plastic totes too and they're yeah. not very thick either they're you know they don't have a whole lot of insulating properties as well right. so so when we you know us ourselves like i still have i still have baby lizards with that are raised in 30 40 gallons or something like that or i have them in exoterras and i have them in bin setups or small enclosure setups right um we recommend if you're really willing to try a little bit of everything, see what holds best for you. But yeah, there's a reason why we say those uh, glass enclosures, you know, with screen tops, stuff like that essentially don't hold well. 
Um, right. Don't get me wrong. A lot of us started out that way. It's because we're that's where we're at, at the mercy. We're at the mercy of the hobby when that's all was really there, and we weren't really being taught to how to make enclosures and stuff like that. We had to really just learn from professionals where that were really far and few and slim in between, you know. And so mm-hmm. now there's quite a few of us where this is uh, almost like second nature to being a monitor keeper now. Once you get experience, right? And so, um, just getting, just getting uh, you guys onto this part without understanding what not to do um you know it, it does take away from your learning experience so that's why i do recommend hey you know get an idea on what what the glass light might, might might be and you realize um on a cold night that cage would just lose all its heat properties super fast right but in a wooden enclosure you turn off the lamp it's still going to keep that residual heat for quite some time, especially if yeah. the venting is very limited. And so you won't have to crank it on anything at nighttime. So then in your turn, in terms for you, you save electricity, your animal doesn't have to be hot at nighttime and you're not cooking it anymore. Um, you know, yes. you're, you're now just, uh, you're now letting the animal cool down at nighttime, all that stuff like that. Humidity will do its natural properties arising and everything while the, while the heat's kind of cut off. And, um, you know, it, you'll, you'll essentially go through your normal motions. Now, um, when you have a glass enclosure, same thing with the humidity as well. If you have a screen top and all of that's just escaping, this is why we don't really recommend them as great enclosures. Now, all of us still, me and Alan ourselves, we have glass enclosures that are rigged with wooden tops. Uh, we have mm-hmm. bins that are rigged with different tops to support a heat lamp inside. Um, so we've taken something that wasn't working so well and essentially put a Band-Aid on it, sort of. And right. when that is now conserving heat a little bit, like for myself, right? Exoterra's just as garbage as uh, 40 gallon because it has the same same issues. You crank a bunch of heat into it, the screen top just allows everything to evaporate. And so, and it also has the double venting, which are out the doors as well, and all the other creases in the enclosure that allows it to escape. And so, for me, what I do is I rig, I, I just toss the top. I don't even use it, utilize it anymore. Um, and what I do is I have very thin plywood. I think it's the quarter inch plywood that's very, very thin. And I make a hole, attach a little heat lamp to it. Slide it. it. I need it needs to be really thin because the Exoterra has these little ledges that fits the actual lid itself, and so if you can get plywood thin enough to fit in that crack and slide it in there, that enclosure now that once wasn't so great because it was dehydrating your animal, releasing all that heat and humidity, now is a much more functional enclosure. Yeah, and then when you go from there, you then. Obviously, you're not going to be utilizing an enclosure like that forever because it's a small glass enclosure. They don't make them very large. Eventually, you're probably going to need a very large enclosure. And you may realize that, man, you're working against the heat and humidity and stuff like that so much because you're losing it all. So you'll get to a point where you want to conserve better. You want your animal to not have to deal with so much temperature fluctuation and be more consistent, things like that. You go with a then much more sturdier built enclosure, something that's going to be lasting with heat and humidity. It doesn't allow everything to just escape very fast. It has small or more proportionate vents, air convection if it needs to, but it doesn't just expel all of the heat and humidity. Right. right. And um, that, that works or, and it, it gives you a little more control. It gives you a little more stability so you can adjust easier, I guess. Yeah, you don't need like for sorry, man. For example, right? Like, you don't have to crank a ton into a wooden enclosure compared to a glass cage the same size. So we're gonna take a six by two by two in both wooden and then one in glass. The six by two by two is equivalent to what a hundred gallons, give or take. So something like that, right? Um, Twenty or so, something like that, right? And um, essentially, it's big, right? It needs it's a large, large, (laughs) it's a large enclosure. You would need maybe 250, 300 watts or more to heat that 100-gallon 100 100 enclosure, right? right? That 6 by 2 by 2 if it feels glass. 
Now, if it was a wooden enclosure, I'm currently only using two 45 watt bulbs. That's a total of 80, 90, maybe 100 watts, you know? Mm -hmm. And so look at that 300 watts, something like that, compared to only 75, 100 watts. You know, you're going to choose, you're going to choose the one that's saving you more electricity. Right. And so, you know, you're going to have to really work on, on what's going to, work out for you in the long run as well sorry bro go ahead and keep on going oh no that was <coughs> kind of it um i have my the glass enclosures i do use um most of them there's they're either on top of wooden enclosures that are heated that have a heat lamp inside of them so the top of the um that or at the bottom of the glass enclosures stay relatively warm because of that um also, they're up a little higher, and so heat rises. Uh, so for all the cages that are lower, uh, usually I put the wood ones uh, or the ones that insulate better lower, and I let the glass ones sit on top, and I just use that to my advantage. Um, and then up in the loft area, which is up towards the top of the, the space where I keep things, um, there are glass enclosures up there, but it, it is because of that. It's intentional because the heat does rise. If yeah. they were wood, they would almost do well where I couldn't actually use a light bulb in them. Um, I would literally have to let them, <coughs> excuse me, allergy season. Uh, I would have to let them sit in the summer at their ambient temperatures because uh, otherwise I'd be just, you know, keeping them way too hot or running the lights at night. So in that scenario, the glass actually works in my favor. And then I just have to adjust or account for it in the winter by making sure it stays warmer up in that area. Yeah. So I've, I've done yeah. that in certain ways, but just different ways of thinking. You know, it's not that they're not usable. Just know the properties of the material you you want to use or that you have available to you, right. and make adjustments. Whether it's you know, light bulbs and like in the in the community right now, we're talking about enclosures that are well sealed, well well kept, sturdier, right? But guys that are in like Alabama or somewhere so humid, having a closure that breathes a little bit more or their partial indoor outdoor enclosures or things like that, they essentially don't need to be trapped right. and you don't need to conserve any. You have so much flow and around already around in the air. And so the chronic dehydration that your animal might might get isn't really happening there because of the actual dense humidity that was is, is in the air there in those southern states right um, and so that helps them out and and really keeping is a little bit different everywhere you go a little bit yeah know? yeah and uh, most i've had most, to adjust as well right recommendations you know and, uh, yeah even in the same state i've uh i think most people know i've moved down to southern california the last couple of years now and so my uh my actual humidity and where i live now is quite different from where i used to live before and so describe where i lived before in san jose california that place is maybe about 20 minutes from the marina or from the shore in mountain view and stuff like that where it's uh it's it gets an ocean breeze gets a fog rolling through and uh you get the bay breeze essentially right that mm -hmm. humidity comes in and all that um, it kind of helps out a little bit. Now, where I live now um, is very dry. I live in the valley now. I'm maybe uh, uh, an hour or about 45 minutes easy from the actual coast. So let's say that hour, hour 20-minute difference, give or take, depending on which which coast I'm going to, um, that makes quite of a difference in humidity. And um, it uh, plays a part in my own setups and my own incubators and all that stuff. And so I have to really now play with the fact that things are much more drier, much more, um, I would say, it's uh, definitely not as dense humidity at all here. Um, maybe on a, on a day where it's cloudy and hot at the same time then I can get some humidity from those clouds, the sun hitting those clouds. And then the clouds, the humidity, once it's built underneath the clouds, the clouds actually make a cover where it's like a forecast over the actual 
standing humidity within the air, right? Us mm -hmm. beneath the clouds. So it's essentially trapping all that. And that's the only time I get dense humidity here. It's when it rains and it's sunny and it's cloudy all at the same time. And that's the only time. But Super dense all at once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's a, uh, for me, it's the only time other than that, it's like 15, 20% humidity, 30% uh, on a lucky time. And right now, luckily, the last few weeks, I don't know if it's spring taking its time or the weather just being finicky. There has been in the east and Colorado, it's like snowing again or something like that. People were telling <laughs> me. And so uh, my friend was like, yeah, I'm building a snowman right now in, in summertime and or, you know, in May. And um I'm like, wow. So I would say the weather is finicky and not making up its mind right now. And so instead of having consistent 80, 90 degree days, which I would normally have in April and May, like I did last year here, it's today is uh, looking at the weather. It is only 72 degrees today. So for a, so for a Southern California area, you would expect it to be a lot hotter in my in my area. So it's only 3.30 right now, which is even the dense part of the densest heat of the day, and it's still not that hot. And this has been actually beneficial for me, I think. I'm not fighting all this hot, hot weather. You know, I'm waiting for it. I'm letting it take its time. Um, maybe in July and September, shoot, okay, bring it. But, you know, right now I love the – it's steady. It's not – well, sometimes when things are too hot, my animals are stressed, and I, I actually yeah. got to, like, do different stuff, turn off all the heat lamps. And um, right now I'm still hanging tight on my my steady – I don't have to turn on the AC, and things are still decently 70 degrees, 80 degrees, nothing too crazy, like 90 and 100, you know? Not yet. Not yet. It's 90 here today, man. I'm wow. going – you know, I've noticed also that uh, the Indonesian stuff does get a lot more stressed. Not only the lizards, but the snakes when it gets hot. And then the Australian stuff, um, like the Centralian carpet pythons I have, and uh, and the Australian monitors, they're ready to go. It's like their favorite time, you know. Let things get a little hot and game on. Um, yeah. So it's interesting having to account for those and treat them different. I've also started... Uh, mapping out which enclosures I'm going to put animals in because of that, you know. So um, which ones will keep the temperature and humidity that I want. And so that's kind of how some of my decisions are being made right now. Or keeping the um, <clears throat> the endo stuff on uh, or in enclosures that are lower to the ground, keeping the Australian stuff up above them. Yeah, yeah um, I'm about to do a whole bunch of readjusting myself. So uh, I have a... Um, a guy. I'm, I'm might as well shout him out on here. Uh, his name's his name's Luis, and he's in Southern California. And uh, he, his Instagram's Reptile Hut, Reptile underscore Hut. But uh, he's my he's my cage guy. He, he's the guy that I kind of give my plans to. We work out, we work them out together. Um, you know things like that. And uh, essentially, whatever whatever I need solidify because I don't always have the tools to do everything or nor the space um he's really mm -hmm. doing it for me and he has been for a little while um but um what, what we're currently doing is i have issues with I, I actually don't have issues my animals have issues with each other um and <laughs> so uh with the mangrove and indica species there's a few reasons why people don't breed them and one of them is that they're they're at they're jerks to each other um you know in and around the breeding process uh dominance uh, cage aggression not enough space stuff like that and um mine some of them are all frantic because they're all wild caught you know you don't i don't have any captive bred ones to really work with i do have a couple that i bred myself prior but they're not exactly ready yet and so and or they're not the right species and so um, you know, my, the ones that I'm trying to breed, let's just say my coli or my Kai Island mangrove type of monitors, those are all wild caught. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're, the girls are really mean to each other. Like they'll attack <laughs> each other right out of the cage. Um, and the male, he's, he'll play nice all of a sudden and then he'll charge them. And I kind of stress out. I pull the female if it's too bad or if she's not smart enough to get away. Um, you know, things like that. 
Uh, but these cages are to help me um, get them used to each other a little bit more. So that's what I've been doing is I've been kind of rebooting some of my enclosures a bit. Um, yeah. Since we're still on the, those enclosure topics now, I have one, two, three of my enclosures will have partitions in them. Some of them are already small enough where they're just going to be for solo animals or for the smaller stuff. But um, the, all the six and eight foot enclosures have partitions being made now for them. Um, and so uh, one's already in, one's just finished being made. And really, uh, really, it's just uh, some, it's like, the, I, I don't even know. It's almost like a zoo-grade material fencing. It's black. It's coated. Really, really nice. It's what? It's like, coated. It's, yeah, well, yeah. One, one that Jim Hank and stuff used. So it's not like that sharp galvanized chicken wire that's going to rub their face off. It's kind of, it's not soft, but it's smooth. Mm -hmm. And so it's uh, perfect for what I want to use. I, I actually was uh, pretty. Um, I was being a little Kyle about the specific one that I needed to use. <laughs> so uh, I told him, I was like, "Hey, man, I'm gonna send you a link, and please find this one and apply this one because I don't want any other type of mesh." Um, and uh, all they are is just a sturdy that that sturdy type of zoo type of mesh um, that a lot of uh, big monitor keepers use, or for, even for big birds, things like that, and they're really sturdy. Um, hard to, you know, bend and things like that. And so, and they're made with a door that's about three by three. And it's a swinging, swinging door that I can lock close if I need to. And essentially these animals can go back and forth when I want to have them go back and forth, but more so if I will need to just introduce them to each other without them killing each other right on contact, that that's what my partition wall is for. Mm -hmm. um, I call it my assurance wall because it's giving me some assurances on them not killing each other and them killing themselves and all that stuff like that. And so, um, you know, I just uh, I just want them to be more safe. And then right now my whole part is the introductory leads into combat, you know, right? Yeah. So I'm wanting – I want to avoid the combat. And so what I'm doing is popping them together and having that partition wall, letting them just – get each other get used to each other's smells and i don't know how long i'm gonna do it maybe some are gonna click and in a couple of weeks they'll tame down with each other or maybe it'll take forever and it's only gonna happen and they're gonna be right next to each other all the time when she's she's going through vitiligenesis and she's going through that part where it's time to it's time to mate um and that's what i'm wanting to find out i've actually never done partition enclosures before with big monitors i have done them with some snakes back in the days like i had small enclosures where i would let king snakes through but you know those are king snakes um, but <laughs> in the same sense you're trying not to have animals kill each other and only introduced in a specific time you know yeah. and so this is what i'm uh, I, I basically had my king snake separated until i noticed the female was ovulating and then i introduced the male at the right time um you know now uh so this I, is history I didn't know, Kai. This is yeah. uh, snake yeah, I used to be a snake guy a little bit uh, before before mm. all the monitors. I used to keep snakes. <laughs> I mean, in in addition, like everybody that I worked with too was more into snakes, and I was into the monitor lizards. I guess the monitor lizards back in the days were, you know, still considered like hard or you know, um, yeah, things like that. And so. Um, we're now, getting there, though. We're getting there. Yeah. One day, just like water monitors, no one was really breeding them in the past. Right. You know, there, or there was a time. Yeah. Yeah. But now um, the wealth of information is out there. And uh, I, I don't want to give up, right? I don't want right. to be like, oh, I'm not able to do it. You know, I'm just uh, I'm gonna throw in the towel. I've only had them for a year. I've already had them all nest and lay on their own. So I uh, have that down. It's not yeah. like that's anything different. It's just hooking the male up at the right time where he's not trying to rip off any limbs. It's like, come on, bro. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this partition wall, I'm hoping that it'll work, giving new experience, new ideas on how to have them approach each other. Um, that's my, that's, I guess that's my main thing is I don't want to freak the male out. I don't want to freak the female out. 
they basically are going to be apprehensive from the get-go. And that, I think, in turn leads to the fighting. Mm -hmm. Dominance, asserting each other, asserting one over the other. One's not willing to be dominated. And so, you know, it's kind of like, damn, they're going to basically now fight until the other one dominates the other one. Um, Some of these... I'd say behaviors and um, just 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 how they act naturally. I, I actually don't have a, a clue of what I'm really paying attention. <laughs> like it's what I see, and I'm trying to uh, decipher. All right, you know this is this behavior, and okay, this is uh, the right one. And when we talked to Jake the other day, and he was mentioning to me or to us about. You know, just like the tongue flicking and the right arch in the back, and um, you know the, the just like that's how that's basically going to decipher the next five ten minutes is what's going to happen, and that's basically what I was experiencing. So mm-hmm. I would love to get down where he can pinpoint a behavior to what's going to happen. You see how you know how, right. how that, that was interesting. Yeah, and um, you know I'm really trying to catch on to that because obviously not having my animals. I'm not having the Kai Islands for more than a year, really. Now, um, a year is not that long. Um, I mean, sure, it is quite some time. It's dang, it's a whole year. But um, <laughs> having these animals and learning them and all that stuff like that, I'm really getting them into maturity. So I got them when they were roughly uh, 15, 18, 20 inches. So I would guess that they were a year, two years old, give or take. Right. So now they're into their sort of, I would say prime yeah getting into their their first good years of <laughs> testing i've got a couple of them to lay um now you know all that's good basically nothing is needing to um be done other than popping the mail but he's just not working right so <laughs> yeah <laughs> always got to be something yeah man that's that wrench that i was talking about basically think you're doing everything right you're learning your girls getting them to do what you need to do on a cued timing um getting the cued timing to do is also impossible for one that getting mangroves to do it or endo species to do it cued in when you kind of just you know what you're kind of do take the food away do it for this certain amount of time bring it back up the humidity all that right all that cued in uh works like six out of ten times for me (laughs) You know, yeah. it doesn't always flow right, or I don't know what I'm doing wrong, maybe. But um, yeah, it's 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 it's, it's a headache. <laughs> so, <clears throat> man, we there's a lot to get into that we could go, but maybe. Hmm, I'm thinking. how oh, we should probably save that. So, for all the listeners out there. Uh, Kai was just talking about, you know, when a wrench comes in, we go from the ground up, yeah. you know, study it, basically uh, <laughs> throwing everything out the window sometimes, trying to start from scratch and just losing all faith in ourselves and uh, figuring out what and, we're doing and then figuring out what we're not doing and then do that. Right. right. <laughs> and more likely than not, we're actually pretty much on the right track now. It's just when, when something goes wrong, you doubt yourself, you doubt everything. And so I'll bounce those these things off of Kai and he'll kind of reel me back real slow, you know, and give me that encouragement. Hopefully I've been the same way. And then we talk about maybe making minor adjustments. And um, so recently I did this with Kai because I've, I've been keeping the, the Indonesian dwarfs um, for about two years, maybe a little longer. And um, I really haven't had any luck with them. And I, maybe I've been a little spoiled by the Australian stuff, but I was really getting nowhere. And so while the animals are alive, um, I was saying to Kai, basically, okay, let's go through this. How? What are you doing with your endo monitors? What's your mindset? What are you thinking about? And um, yeah, he kind of um, led me through what he does. Um, <clears throat> a little, basically a, what do you call it? A chart even? A, yeah, a, a little line graph, picture yeah. graph. On how a, you, it's yeah. A, it's a... The dotted line graph slash timeline slash weather chart slash feeding chart slash humidity chart. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. It's basically all of that all overlapped on each other. 
um, this is how my brain thinks. And, <laughs> and I didn't get this from any, just, you know, I got this from like, you know, the masters and other people that are doing it. And um, I was, I needed direction and discipline. And I couldn't just, what I meant, I mean, you know, I have discipline and I have direction, but what I meant is like the animals need it, you know? Um, and so what I needed to do was pinpoint the, the year. And it wasn't even actually 12 months. How much I'd, I had you what, do almost two years of timeline. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, and this is how, how it works where you're not preparing your animals just the month before or the two months before you're preparing your animals months, like half the year. And you're really getting down to the nitty gritty on when precisely how much, how much they're going to feed during um, the precise time of the year. Uh, and for, for example, there's Northern hemisphere type of cooling and heating for your animals when it comes to breeding. And then there's also the Southern, Southern hemisphere, which you're, you'd be copying stuff from that area and trying to, uh, I guess, uh, imitate how the weather and stuff would be there. You know, so most of us are using a Northern hemisphere one where like example, we'd be doing the coal, the colubrids, mm -hmm. cooling them down for the winter time a little bit, right into fall, into, into winter. And then maybe at the end of winter, you're going to warm them back up just something like that. Right. You took them down for a couple months or took them down for half a month, maybe sat them at a, a steady cool for a couple months and then brought them back up. Right. That's, uh, yeah. that's how a lot of us do it. Now, um, you're going to sort of do this with your monitors, but you'd have to pinpoint it at the right months and feeding. I'm not going to get into all that currently, but the, for example, that's basically what we're doing where even though he wants to breed in the normal time that they'd be breeding for the Southern Hemisphere, which is like October, November, all the way into even April and May, that's a lot of – that's, you know – basically when a lot of the animals over there are breeding that's why you see in our current in the united states many many people that have monitor lizards they're all laying right now within this last several months okay they're they do do and lay on other parts of the year as well but majority of them with with would, would have laid within the last four or five months um now you're taking that to your advantage if you're trying to breed within that time frame, you are being very strict on the diet months prior to that. And so, like I said, it's not anything where you're drawing out just a couple months. You're drawing six, seven, eight months, almost 12 months back if you want to really get into how strict the diet and all that stuff like that is going to be. So I'm giving Kai a little message. You guys can't see what I'm doing, but I'm uh... – um, and – Basically, this year, uh, it worked out. So, unintentionally, you know, uh, I've been putting my Indonesian species through that. And it, it just took them – these were wild-caught animals. They were coming from Indo. And they needed to adjust, basically. They were born at a certain time over there. They had to – you know, they're, they're, they're off from their natural life cycle, which is over there. They're born at a certain time, which means they would probably – be introduced to certain food sources at certain times throughout the year. So now when they make that journey over here and I have to um, reestablish them, basically it's like some serious jet lag, you know, <laughs> um, you, you got years and years and years of these animals doing their thing and um, <clears throat> producing their, their, you know, there's, there's some of those wild instincts in these babies uh, even if you get them young, that you got to bring them over here and it's, you know, retraining them uh, essentially. So I think that's what's going on. I think they just take a little longer. And once you get them kind of flipped from what Kai was saying, from a Southern hemisphere type of um, reality in your, in your care to a more Northern hemisphere uh, way of keeping, then yeah. once they adjust and it might take a, a little longer, um, then, you know, you can really start hopefully seeing progress with them. Now I still have a lot to do. Staying on task because you can't just bounce back and forth between when you want to breed them. It's now that's going to kind of be the steady, you know, right? Um, like, man, I don't want to breed my monitors during summertime 
okay? But <laughs> I have a feeling they will because they just do. Um, last year they threw me off, but I've had a female from the end of January, beginning of February lay, and then in March lay again, the end of March. So that was 60 days in between two different clutches, right? So that's mm -hmm. a, almost a almost a back-to-back -back basically, right? And then now on another clutch. And then if I stop her now, don't introduce the male again, but if she just keeps on developing, I, what I did is I think I opened – what we were learning is that I opened the cycle, right? I, we started over. We basically went from – the cooling thing. Oh, remember how I told you I went down to 60s. I just stopped messing with my winter time and I used it in my advantage because my room and house wasn't going to get any colder than 60 degrees naturally anyways, right? With all the other heat lamps on and things like that. And if we run a little heater or whatever, or just naturally, it's not going to run that cold. And so I let myself get really cold. I took back all their feedings and from the end of December, so January, March, sorry, January, February, March, I was really strict on no feeding, like ba barely any food, a little bit of maintenance. Took them down from pudgy to pretty lean, super lateral folds. Just their tail base still healthy and thick, but everything else on the animal is super lean. Mm -hmm. and then I took them all back this, this, uh, you know, this uh, spring, and now things are going off again. Some of them started really early too, where, dude, in that one and a half, two months was all they needed. But once February and March came around, and the, it naturally started to get warmer here anyways, you know, they just kept on going. So I don't know if I'm going to stop them. I think I should because if I kept going and then I wanted to breed again during the real time, I'd have no break. And then my animals would just be dead or they'd be so yeah. tired. Yeah. So um, I'm going to stop them this summer. I'm probably just going to let them cool, regain stuff. It'd basically be a reset fall gonna condition them a little bit more and then hopefully breed them in again in in this next what do you call it's the yeah, the time right yeah all right all right you guys so this one is we're gonna have to cut this one short and sweet real quick hopefully we're able to give you guys a fair amount of information um we'd like our we'd like our brothers over there doing other parts of the uh in the npr network to have their own time as well and so um we'll see you guys again um you know, yeah. I, I actually uh, would like to do more Q&A stuff. Um, so if you guys happen to have a fair, decent amount of questions now, you know, having 20 to 30 may not be what you need because, you know, we're not going to be able to do that within the two hour time frame, roughly, that we have most of our podcasts. But a good half a dozen, maybe 10 questions, something where we might not have answered before. Um something new, different species, new topics. We're really looking for um, a beginner in all types of species so we can kind of cover stuff for you, you know? Yeah. That way things are all lined up. If someone asks for roughnecks like we just did yesterday, bam, we got roughneck ones. Right. Um, someone asks for non-monitor stuff, we have a non-monitor one. We have That'd a savanna one. one. We have a savanna one now and so things like that. We're, we're looking for you if you are a beginner – and or you have questions, even intermediate, and also you have adults too, and you want to go to the next step. Um, let us know. Shoot us a message, and uh, we'll go from there, all right? All right, guys. Uh, check out the MoreliaPythonRadio.com website. Check out their shop and their Patreon, as well as the other podcasts they are bringing to you. And uh, support US ARC. We appreciate you guys listening. So hopefully you'll stay with us and uh, we'll get some of your questions and cover some of the topics that you want to know more about. All right. Thanks, guys.